All right, what's up, everybody? We are back with another smashing episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I am joined, as always, by my faithful, loyal companion and best friend, Aaron. Pizza Mind Malone. Aaron, what's cracking? What's cracking is the entire universe around us, Bryce. There's all kind of interdimensional space dust coming through and light shooting out of shit that we've never seen before. We don't care about any of that. That's not what this podcast is about. This is the year of interoperability, as we've been talking about for forever. While I don't mean on a metaphysical or quantum physical level, I'm talking about crypto, because that's pretty much all we care about over here. So... We can't have a conversation about interoperability without bringing up Polkadot. That's exactly right. And guess what I've done? I've gone ahead and invited two of my buddies, Joe Petrowski, who is a research analyst at Parity, uh, who is really the one of the, you know, Parity is building one of the main builders of Polkadot. We'll get into that relationship in a little. And Peter Morick, who is uh, the head of PR and public relations for Parity as well. And these two chaps are really on the ground floor building Polkadot. We're going to dive into it, but first, uh, let's meet these folks. You brought me some chaps and folks today, huh? You're too good to me. <laughs> Joe, hey, Peter, on. thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, let's let's do a brief introduction uh, here. Uh, Peter, since we heard your voice first, uh, you, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background and how you found yourself uh, working in this crazy world. Sure. Yeah. So Peter Morick, head of public affairs at Parity Technologies. Um, before I joined Parity about two, two and a half years ago, uh, I was working for a public affairs strategic consulting firm that had been started by some of the former Obama senior advisors and a few of uh, Governor Cuomo's senior advisors. So uh, I worked. I was working there for about six years doing all kinds of public advocacy work, um, public affairs lobbying and other strategic communications for clients all over the country and all sorts of industries. And towards the end of my of my time there, I sort of became the one who who knew about blockchains internally. Always always a good idea um, if you're interested in the space to be the one in your company who sort of knows what's going on. So I became the national crypto and blockchain lead there. Um, and and during that adventure, I, I got to know uh, Jutta Steiner, the CEO of Parity, um, through my network in New York and realized like there's basically nowhere better I could land if I wanted to make the jump into crypto full time. And it's uh, it's been an amazing story since I've really enjoyed it. That's awesome. I, I love that introduction, how you, you know, you just happen to be the, uh, the token crypto guy. Uh, uh, you know, and that was kind of like what I was when I started, I was working in the media business, you know, five years ago when our CEO came to us and was like, Hey, who's heard of blockchain? Like, I think totally. it might disrupt. And I was just like, I've heard of it. Like I'll do a big research report and then dove deep in and, and down the rabbit hole. So it's always good uh, to be that guy or gal for sure. <laughs> absolutely. And Joe, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. H how are we doing? Pretty good. How are you? Thanks for having me. You bet. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, what kind of research you're focused on at Parity. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny question. Like my title is research analyst, but uh, I don't do a ton of research. Um, a lot of it is just like keeping up with Polkadot itself um, and what else is going on in the interoperability space. Very cool. Very cool. And from your background, how'd you end up in crypto? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, like Peter, a bit of a long story. Um, it's nice that uh, Aaron mentioned some uh, space stuff before because that's where I started my career was working on uh, satellite launch, shock and vibration analysis. Um, and then was kind of in the crypto like back at that time this was like 2012 13ish um and then uh but 
still went a long time before I uh, like got really deep into it. Um, and that was more during a little uh, career detour. I, did, I was a professional cyclist for three years um, and just did a lot wow. of like crypto and uh, research and programming and stuff like that kind of in my uh, my spare time when I wasn't training and racing. And uh, like Peter, thought that if I wanted to make this a full-time thing, then uh, Parity was a great place to land. Very cool. And and to kick this whole conversation off, I want to ask you both the same question. I'll start with Peter. Um, Peter, what is Polkadot to you? So Polkadot at its core is a protocol that is designed to connect all of the disparate blockchains that we have uh, in the world today and also future chains uh, if we're we're going to talk about this a bit more, I think later on in the podcast. But if we're going to push towards this concept of Web 3.0, all of these base layer web protocols need to be able to talk to each other. So, what is the difference between Polkadot and other projects that are focused on interoperability, like Cosmos or Constellation or Quant? Yeah, sure. So, um, like Constellation and Quant. Um, I don't really know that much about. Um, usually when we talk about interoperability, um, it's like Polkadot, Cosmos. Um, and uh, we talk about like Ethereum too quite a lot, um, even though they aren't so focused on like other blockchain interoperability. So we can kind of like start with Cosmos. Um, the, the, the model of Cosmos is to kind of like bridge these disparate chains. Um, and I think you have to kind of start by defining like what, how do you, like, how do you think of interoperability? And um, you know, one sense is to say that like um, they can send messages to each other, right? So you have like two chains and they can send a message to each other and they understand these messages. And this is kind of like, um, you can think of this as like very primitive language. So if you have like two blockchains that don't speak the same language, they can't really interoperate. Um, and if you have some um, common protocol, like a, a shared language, then they can send messages to each other and kind of like interpret what they mean. And so Cosmos kind of provides the primitives to be able to send these messages. Where Polkadot takes us a step further is besides just like sending sending the messages between chains is we provide the context for these messages. So you could have uh, the same message be sent in two different contexts and it could mean two very different things um, depending on like what information you have around the sent, around that message. Um, how do you trust like the provenance of that message? Um, and in Polkadot, you trust the provenance of the message because you're sharing uh, common state and execution logic with the person or the chain that sent you that message. So um, if we think about like interoperability, like between Ethereum and smart contracts, um, that already exists. And the reason that those are interoperable is not because they're in like the same like virtual machine. That, that's what allows them to be synchronous. And um, I know this is like a one-on-one podcast and like we probably don't want to go into like asynchrony here. Um, but the fact that like contracts and Ethereum are are um, in the same virtual machine is not what makes them interoperable. That that just allows them to make synchronous calls. What makes them interoperable is that they're sharing some common execution logic um, that is like we all agree that like we are at this state of the system. And if I send a message to this other contract, there's no way for that contract to roll back to a previous state without myself also rolling back to that previous state. So I don't have to like worry about that. And so. Polkadot tries to provide that same context, but in an asynchronous way. So you have different chains that are in different, actually like different execution environments. Um, so they can each host their own logic that's not just smart contracts, but they can still actually interact with each other in a context that's meaningful so that when you exchange messages, 
you have confidence about how those messages are going to be interpreted and where they come from. Okay. I'm going to try and uh, bring all what you just said down to like one sentence uh, for anybody who's listening who might be confused. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in a world where Polkadot has proliferated, right? It's achieved its full final vision, right? Uh, will it mean that I could have Ethereum, for instance, in my wallet um, and you have a Bitcoin address and I could say, I want to send you $100. You know, I've got Ethereum, but you only have a Bitcoin address. I'm going to send you $100. I could scan your code uh, and send $100 worth of Ethereum. It'll go through the Polkadot network. It'll be cryptographically secured. On the other end, it will atomically kind of spit out Bitcoin on the other end. Is that the vision or am I totally off base? That's yeah. definitely part of it. Yeah. So that, would, that is absolutely something that Polkadot enables. Um, the other interesting that's piece cool. of this. Yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. Um, and that's all in the near-term roadmap. Bitcoin and Ethereum bridges uh, are obviously high priority items for any protocol that's looking to uh, be interoperable or create this interoperability layer for uh, Web3. The other differenti- key differentiating factor between how Polkadot addresses interoperability and how Cosmos, for example, addresses interoperability is Polkadot is the only protocol in development today that also allows you to transmit arbitrary data. So you could both send that uh, that value across chain, but also include some messages, include some other uh, executable logic in that OP message codes. that allows uh, applications to be triggered, smart contracts to be triggered, and do other interesting things. So it really opens up a whole new design space for blockchain developers. Um, and Cosmos, like you mentioned, the idea of an atomic swap. Uh, Cosmos is more like just uh, protocol that's optimized for just token swaps um, and not arbitrary data. I think if people understand how Ethereum works today and how Ethereum sidechains work today, I think you can think about Cosmos in a very similar vein. It's, it's a lot like Cosmos is is a, a system of sidechains for the Tendermint uh, consensus engine, whereas like a, si- a POA sidechain on uh, Ethereum is a sidechain for the Ethereum virtual machine. So in that sense, Cosmos is a lot like Ethereum 1.0 today. It's just proof of stake and not proof of work. I see. Yeah, it still brings me back to this like trust mechanism that you have to trust the message that you're receiving. So it's provided like the interface to send a message, but it hasn't eliminated the need to trust the sender or the for the sender to trust the recipient. Let me ask you this, as far as messages go, what kind of messages are we talking about? Are these just simple uh, API calls, or is it a situation where I can actually send a private message with my thoughts on the chaos in the world? You know, can you give us a real world example of what kind of messages would be sent cross chain? Yeah, so I think like it helps a little bit to think about like the interface of these chains, and, and like this is where we differ also from Ethereum two when you talk about like um, on Ethereum two, this would be like cross shard communication, um, and in Polkadot, it would be like parachain to parachain communication. And so it really depends on like what each parachain makes as its API. And so you could certainly have your own chain that says, send me, uh, send me your thoughts today, um, like the diary chain, right? And so some chains will accept that, some chains won't. Um, and like to think past tokens, we're actually looking at a lot of chains that would be tokenless. And so Polkadot kind of allows these like different models where 
Um, because most chains have their token as a security mechanism, it's part of their consensus that like in proof of work, the value of the block reward is your incentive to follow the protocol and proof of stake, the uh, the risk of losing your funds is, is your incentive to, to do right. Um, and so in Polkadot, you have all these parachains that are secured by some common logic and some common mechanism. Um, all of a sudden, it, it opens up a lot of economic possibilities for the tokens on those parachains because they don't have to rely on their tokens um, in order for security. And so um, like a, a token swap between chains, like to get back to your original question, like that, that's the kind of like easiest, simplest thing to imagine, just like sending a token across. Um, but these could be smart contract calls. If you have a smart contract chain, it could be like calling directly into some chain's API. Um, I mean, we're looking at lots of like parachains, like governance parachains and staking parachains where like these chains don't actually have tokens themselves, but they just kind of like send signals into the relay chain about what to do with um, like the main tokens. And so you'd really have like any kind of message that could go on like a normal computer and it doesn't need to, it doesn't even need the tokens for its security. Um, it's totally abstract, which also makes it like a little bit more difficult to, to wrap your head around. Yeah, there's this cool project uh, under development right now called SubSocial, which is a social network built uh, using the Substrate framework, which we'll, I think, get into a bit later on. It's the blockchain building framework upon which uh, we've built Polkadot and also a, a framework developed within Parity Technologies. Uh, but SubSocial is a social network and it allows people to post, like a the, you paste post a Facebook post, you can post a, a similar post on chain and view it through the interface. And it, it potentially costs people money to upvote or downvote or like or dislike this post all on chain. So we're talking about potentially using those sorts of structures within the governance of Polkadot where to, to, to express a strong opinion, it could potentially uh, cost you more if you want to like present more conviction behind just your opinion on uh, uh, the direction of, of a protocol or a project. So you can really start to imagine all the different possibilities when you can imagine that because the arbitrary data passing is there between chains, uh, you're really able to go build beyond just financial applications and really delve into some of these social systems that we're using online today. And that's a really interesting concept. If you're actually writing your thoughts that are going to be saved forever on a blockchain, Maybe you're going to be a little more careful about what you what you write before you hit send and put uh, some financial compensation into yes. it. Which at least honestly, until we have zero be... knowledge protections on uh, on, <laughs> on posts, if, if if you want it, yes. I'm, I'm sure that that's going to be a four chan two But let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about web three which you mentioned a little earlier, Peter, because that's a big big part of this interoperability landscape. What does the grand vision for Web 3.0 look like from your vantage point? Sure. It's all so, complete. So just a little bit of background on Parity Technologies. Um, Parity was co-founded by Dr. Gavin Wood and Dr. Jutta Steiner, both of whom were involved very early on in the Ethereum project. Gav was one of the is one of the original co-founders and was the CTO that built the Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, wrote the yellow paper, conceived of Solidity, and also while he was working on Ethereum in 2014, uh, when dApps first started to emerge, he was the person who coined the phrase Web 3.0 in the context of these decentralized blockchain-based applications replacing a lot of the uh, trusted authorities that we rely on on the internet today. So these trusted authorities are 
the PayPal's of the world, the uh, Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world, where they obviously provide quite a valuable service. And I don't necessarily believe that they're going to go away in the future. These sorts of uh, organizations adapt, but we're hoping to build a new internet tech stack that gives internet users the option to rely on peer-to-peer communication over uh, relying on a trusted intermediary to either pass a message or send a transaction. So would you rather communicate directly to Bryce when you want to hang out, or would you rather ask Mark Zuckerberg if it's okay to, uh, to, to, to host an event on Facebook events and, and invite all your friends. So it's giving people the, the opportunity to some, take back some level of control over their interactions online by uh, utilizing applications built on these trustless protocols. Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning COG Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting-edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC is a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. Wow, very is fascinating. That, is, that, is that too, too uh, <laughs> complex? I thought that, I no, I thought, that was, I thought that was cool. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, that makes sense. But in case that was too abstract for anyone listening, what he's basically saying is we're moving towards direct communication without having to go through Zoom, without having to sign up for an account, without having to pay for a subscription, and without having Big Brother, whomever is behind it, listening and having to approve it or having a kill switch to cut us off if they don't like what we're saying, which, by the way, is happening on Facebook right now towards people that are not on any kind of list, as far as I know. So that's a big deal. Totally. Actually important. And Pete, that's why you are truly a man of the people. That's disgusting. I'm only one person. I'm not a Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, Peter, so actually one of the interesting things that you mentioned uh, in your introduction that I didn't, uh, I didn't know when I was researching your background was, it was that you were so affiliated with the Obama administration and, the, and the, um, Andrew Cuomo. He's the governor of New York, right? I believe. Yep. Yep. Cool. So, and now here you are, you know, heading up a lot of the governance uh, issues that Polkadot is taking. So tell me a little bit, you know, aside from Polkadot specifically, you know, what is blockchain governance? Like for somebody, it, like in my mind, I kind of think of it as like an oligopoly or a plutocracy, I guess, where it's like, if you have uh, most of the capital in that closed system, you get to make decisions based on how much capital, you know, is that a right way to think about it? 
It's a popular way to think about it that's been uh, pushed by a couple of uh, well-known individuals who generally don't like the idea of having what we we look at as more formalized on-chain governance uh, on Polkadot. But just to break it down from the lowest level, like Bitcoin governance, right? Um, right. Bitcoin governance, the Bitcoin improvement process, the BIP process, uh, was introduced to Bitcoin by Amir Taki, uh, and he based that on the Python improvement process, otherwise known as the PIP process, which are uh, loose, unformalized procedures for proposing changes to a open source protocol um, that loosely affiliated open source groups of developers have used for several years to try to coordinate around decisions um, on networks. We have seen from our experience, both in Bitcoin and Ethereum, that when there are very contentious issues tied to protocols that are potentially worth billions of dollars, um, there tends to become a lot of stagnation. So it's easier for everyone to say, let's just maintain the status quo because we're doing okay overall, rather than taking a risk to change the protocol that might upset this status quo. And I like the token price where it's at today. Um, we understand that for something like Bitcoin, this is potentially a feature and not a bug because part of the value proposition for Bitcoin, part of the social contract in Bitcoin is that this thing isn't really going to change. It's going to stay here as digital gold. It's going to move fairly slow. And the fact that it can't be changed by uh, a well-organized even coalition of stakeholders is potentially a value proposition for uh People who want to who want to use Bitcoin, Ethereum tried to, tries to be a bit more progressive in that the social contract states that this protocol will upgrade. There will be hard forks. We will incorporate improvements, but it still doesn't have the binding formalized governance to actually take a decision once the community is fairly comfortable that they agree and uh, execute it as an upgrade on chain to move forward. It, it, it gives a veto to almost anyone in the room who wants to speak up, which also lends or tends towards that same stagnation that we see in Bitcoin. One of the big um, driving factors in Polkadot is the fact that we formalize on-chain governance in a way that is the social contract is understood that we will upgrade much like uh, Ethereum wants to upgrade, but it is going to be uh, decided on based on a on-chain vote using stake-weighted token voting, which you referenced earlier. Um, but I will push back on two items. One, I don't manage all the governance for Polkadot. I, I help to uh, to coordinate and advocate for uh, participation in governance. Um, I can't actually make governance decisions uh, in the way a sort of elected representative in the United States or the UK or, or the not EU a dictator. Today. I'm not a dictator, but I can uh, help educate people on what the issues are and uh, ex help, help them express their opinions on the issues and also help them understand the process that is being implemented in order for their voice to be heard in that decision. So, the plutocracy argument is an interesting one. I would argue that there's some level of plutocracy in everything that we do in life, in governance and corporations. It's sort of inherent in a capitalist society, if you live in a capitalist society. Um, and it's not always necessarily a bad thing, but we have seen income inequality in the world today really lead to a lot of bigger issues. So 
we take this as an opportunity to say, we understand that these issues exist in an in a economically driven system, which much like a capitalist system, a blockchain proof of stake system uh, running on the internet is an economically driven system. Um, we know that we have tools, however, that will allow us to sort of flatten the playing field and allow people to uh, express their conviction on an issue, even though they might not be the biggest bag holder in the room, as they say. So we've done this in a couple ways and, and Joe can fill in a little bit more, but um, we can get into a little bit more about the detail around A, the idea of direct democracy. So you're actually able to vote directly on issues yourself and the concept of conviction voting, where uh, conviction voting is also sometimes. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, referred to as quadratic voting, where you're actually able to give something up uh, to multiply the power of your one token or two tokens. So in oh, wow. the case of Polkadot, um, there's something known as time lock conviction voting. So you can multiply the value of your one token by six in governance by agreeing to lock it up for uh, a period of time. So you can't actually access it or transfer it, but you're conviction in that decision will be heard 6x the token value that you started the day with. Wow, that's fascinating. I feel like the real world, I mean, not the real world, but you know, current <laughs> traditional governance structures uh, need something like that, where you could say, you know, people, a lot of times they just go, they check the boxes, whatever. But if you could say like, I'm so convicted and so passionate about this one thing, I'm going to forego X, Y, and Z. I won't order go to, to the next sure- two elections Bingo. because I want this person to be elected. The other, um, and it's, it is starting to be explored a little bit in uh, the United States is this idea of direct democracy or liquid democracy. There's a really great article in the New Yorker in February, I believe, talking about what the future of democracy looks like. And the idea that you could send a representative to Congress, but every bill that that representative votes on, you could have a, a, a constituent vote that that representative has to follow. So rather than having this person basically have full free will to decide what they think their constituents want out of a bill, their constituents will literally say, you know, there, we, we want, uh, uh, reform and this is the, the vote we want you to take. And the representative would be, um, uh, not required, but would, would follow the will of, of his or her representatives. Wouldn't that be ideal? <laughs> 
it's a ways off, but I think we're working on it. Yeah. Um, but that's also very cool, right? Because it's it's an aspirational, um, I'm a political science major, so I, I could talk about this all day, but it's an aspirational form of democracy that I would love to see implemented more and more in the meat space governance world. But uh, we're implementing it today on Polkadot. So, hey, come play with it here. Very cool. So I feel like Web 3.0 and all the stuff that's being done in crypto, I mean, we've got the smartest people in the world that are leaving their positions in private enterprise, in government, in education to come play here and build here because it's open. And I want to ask all three of you, Bryce, you too, what do you think the world 3.0 is going to look like? If you define World 1.0 as being civilization itself, coming out of the caveman days and having cities and governments in the first place, World 2.0 being the Industrial Revolution, which is now transitioning into this virtual online tech-based interconnected global organism, what does World 3.0 look like to you guys? Uh, I guess I'll start since it's our podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, World 3.0 to me, man, I mean, we talk about this every day. Uh, it's it's something that you know is is focused on the individual, right? And it's it's now not just being classified as you're a citizen of America, or you're a citizen of Germany, right? It's about being a, a global citizen, right? And and with a global citizenship, you get you know new rights. You don't have to just you know be beholden to one currency. You don't have to be beholden to one set of rules. You are you could now you know transfer value anywhere around the world instantly without asking permission from your bank or your government government or your parents, right? It's something that, you know, really focuses on empowering the individual. Um, it's also one that, you know, is going to be, if anybody who's here now uh, and is, you know, buying crypto or, or in the crypto markets, the future is one where the wealth gap uh, is shrunk a little bit because there's there's such a wealth uh, wealth generating opportunity here. So that's kind of a, a little bit of my thoughts. But Joe, I'm curious to think about... Uh, like how you're thinking about the next evolution. Yeah. I mean, I think like blockchain is just part of a, a greater civilizational trends that gives more power to individuals. And like, I mean, blockchain is like one part of it, but we've seen this for hundreds of years. I mean, even like we're all Americans here on this call. I mean, what predated the American revolution? It was like, it was one of the first, like, I guess it wasn't a country, but regions to like implement some sort of postal service, like a formal postal service where like some, some news could travel from like Boston to South Carolina and back to Boston, the round trip before um, you could take like a one-way ship from like Boston to England. Right. And so like the ability for individuals to organize um, was a huge step in order, like in this progression. And we've seen like lots of communication advances to this sort of thing. Um, and I think like what you said about um, not just being a citizen of a country, but what, what blockchain and like Polkadot really do is like they give humans new ways to organize and like form societies where you're right, you're not just part of one society. Um, you can be part of multiple societies voluntarily. And so I think like a lot of times this trend towards individualism uh, does get a little bit confused where it's like, well, are we just going to like not work together, not collaborate anymore? Um, I actually like hope that it's the opposite and that like these tools for organization allow people to collaborate more in more productive groups rather than just like whatever group they happen to be born in. Um, and like we mentioned like inequality a few times. And I think like there's always going to be inequality um, to some extent. And I think like it's almost the, the wrong word um, 
was used there because I don't think people are so frustrated about um, having like wealth inequality. It's more that the system is rigged. Like they, they feel like they don't have any agency. Um, they cannot actually control um, where they end up on that spectrum, right? Um, I think like everybody kind of knows like there's going to be a spectrum, um, but if it feels like it's fixed, like some people will just end up here and some people end up there based on arbitrary factors, then I think that's like what people are really rebelling against. And so absolutely, um, I think like having these tools are like, yeah, they're, they're flawed. And like, yes, if the people, the people who have more tokens are going to have more power in these systems, um, but they're transparent there. You can actually see how decisions are made and enacted. Um, so I think just that in itself is like a big step forward um, towards, um, towards ailing some of this. Um, so I'll pass that off to Peter now. I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, we, so we talked about the individual, but part of focusing on the individual is this idea of decentralization, right? And for me, decentralization really means resiliency. And I'll use two examples, one from my previous life and one from like two weeks ago, um, COVID related. So the first one is I used to work a lot in large scale energy infrastructure and helping big energy companies, small energy companies and advocacy groups get either permitting for uh, offshore wind or um, uh, a government procurement for uh, these things called microgrids. So you understand how these these giant uh, power plants send electricity through big transmission lines and then to smaller distribution lines to your home. That's a fairly centralized model of energy distribution. A microgrid is a localized energy generation, storage, and distribution system where everyone in your neighborhood could have solar panels, everyone in your neighborhood could have a battery pack, and everyone in your neighborhood could connect directly to each other with power lines so that in the event that a hurricane comes uh, and the, the big transmission lines that serve your area get blown over, you're still able to keep your, your, your community running. That's an example of a decentralized power system. Um, the other one that's more recent, um, and I'm taking a wild guess here, considering it's one of the largest podcasts in the world that some of your listeners listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, he had a small community farmer on uh, to talk about the value of having local food sources in this, these events where the major supply chains get disrupted. So we know that having 600 people in a meat processing plant now is a hotspot for uh, virus transmission. And when that 600, 900 person pork processing facility gets shut down because of a pandemic, uh, large regions of the country can all of a sudden lose their access to, to bacon and hot dogs, which can become an issue for a lot of people. Um, having a more decentralized model where people know that there are local farms that they can drive to in bad situations or even in good situations that are able to provide their local community with food when things go bad gives us more resiliency as a culture and is going to help us fight things, everything from income inequality to climate change and everything else. And I think that, uh, the same goes for the internet t technologies we rely on. So going back to like the use cases for Polkadot, Polkadot is meant to be a flexible, meant to be a powerful, meant to be a valuable base level for people to build the systems that they need to be resilient in the future. And that can include things like energy markets and pork supply chain uh, systems in a way that uh, 
purely relying on SAP might become an issue because when SAP's uh, servers go down, uh, you're, you're, you don't know where your pork is. And if you were to have that same uh, supply chain management system implemented on Polkadot, you're relying on thousands of nodes around the world. And, and it's not really going to go down when, when the internet goes down for, for one of these centralized systems. I wonder if Coinbase is running on SAP now that you mentioned it. <laughs> for resiliency, perhaps. Now, I'm thinking that, I mean, just in my observations, I have no scientific fact behind any of this, of course, but it seems like everything in the universe is always trying to return to unity, whether it's dust in space that is gravitationally pulled towards each other, then turning into rocks, then eventually turning into a star over billions of years, or just dust bunnies on the floor of our attic. Um, it seems also in both directions in the human experience, we're always trying to return to unity, whether it's uh, some totalitarian government that has fully conquered the world and now we're all one. Uh, if you want to see an interesting example of that, watch the old movie Hero from like 2003. Phenomenal. Or we're completely breaking apart and becoming one world citizens like what Bryce was talking about, where you know we don't belong to anyone, but we are our own self-sovereign thing, but still at the same time part of this huge decentralized thing. It's kind of like we're trying to accomplish the same thing in, in multiple directions with, um, you know, organizations have been around since like the sixties and seventies with the trilateral commission and the Bilderberg group, even like the most evil things in the world and uh, crazy systems of control are still trying to get back to that unity. Now, what it might look like is um, I think, we are going to have decentralized citizenship and autonomy, but there's going to be a long process to get there. We're seeing huge cracks in these legacy systems of control like banking and government that we, I, I don't know that we've ever seen before. So but let's talk a little bit more uh, down this rabbit hole. You know, what are the trade-offs for the individual to exist in a fully interconnected world and what are the struggles going to be for those who opt out? Because not everyone is going to be willing to participate in what some might consider a utopia and others might consider a dystopia. So I, I would like kind of challenge the premise of this question that like the the universe isn't really like tending toward unity. Unity, it's tending towards like zero. Like the the job of or like the role of physics in the universe is basically to remove all the heat from the universe, and it's just it's moving everything like the universe is like accelerating away from itself. Like everything moves apart and like loses heat. Um, and like um, there's some books about like the constructal constructal law um, that basically like, um, or, yeah, like that's the job of like life and like, like planetary, like geological um, action is basically like to get heat from the center of the planet's core into the atmosphere, like out um, and until it returns to like zero degrees. And, um, like I would say like culturally and yeah, like we are giving more power to individuals and like these large centralized institutions are going to, to crack because centralized everything like ultimately breaks down in, in nature and in, in organizations. Um, and you see like, kind of like, um, I mean like large, like geological things, um, like rivers and stuff like they break down if it's just like one centralized thing, like something always goes wrong. Um, and so but I think like this question, um, yeah, I mean, it's like not necessarily, necessarily with blockchain. Um, and in a lot of ways, like you're either kind of like, 
if you like look at this question more from like the standpoint of globalization, um, people are either kind of like forced in um, where like some sort of like new economy comes to their region and like they either go like work in this factory or like that's like the only opportunity that they have available or they're actually like forced out. So um, if you look at like a lot of like American industry, like the auto industry, for example, like um, they were just like forced out and like there was nothing nothing left like they were kind of forced out of this interconnected world and so i would say like what our goal with blockchain should be is like to reduce the barriers of entry to get into that connected world so like um if you look at like third world regions where like there's no banking or like access to finance because the cost of like a bank opening an account for somebody is actually more than like that person will ever put in the account and so like they can't like loan out that money and ever earn any kind of like return on it um so I'd say like the first objective is like lowering the barrier of entry to get into the connected world. Um, and then for the people who want to opt out, I think that that like depends a lot on where you live and like your community. And there isn't going to be one answer. Like there's not an either like be in the connected world or don't be. Um, there have to be a lot of options and opportunities within both worlds so that people can actually control what they want to do with their lives. I mean, if you want to say like, yeah, I'm not going to use any electricity going completely off the grid i'm gonna like grow my own food and farm and everything um that life looks very different if you live in like ohio versus siberia right like you can't just say like oh i've opted out and i'm going to like just do this thing um it really depends on like the community and like the society that you live in so i would say like we want to like lower the barriers of entry to join whatever society you want um and then like if you opt out I don't think there's an answer. Like it, it just depends on like where you are and like what your motivation to opt out is. And like, I wouldn't even say like you're either in or out. Like it's a binary thing. Like you should be able to like opt in and out on like a more granular level and not just like in on everything. Yeah. Um, this goes really yeah. to one of the core value propositions of to bring this back to Polkadot is a, a Gav said a, a, a little while back that Polkadot is the greatest, the biggest bet in this ecosystem against chain maximalism. So we're here because we believe that people should have all those options. And Polkadot, in a lot of ways, lowers the barrier to entry for you to access the interesting technology or value systems or social contracts on all these different chains and really gives folks the, the uh, freedom and agency to make those decisions for themselves. Really fascinating, guys. Uh, I actually love that uh, that quote from Gav about you know Polkadot is the the bet against maximalism. So I'll have to think with that one. We only have a few more minutes left. Uh, we want to get to some closing questions that we ask every single guest that comes on the show. Uh, but before we get there to those uh, final closing questions, I have one question that I get asked a lot from community members about Kusama relative to Polkadot. Uh, what is, am I saying that right? What is Kusama? I hear it's kind of like a test net for Polkadot. What's going on there? Joe, you want to kick it off? Sure. Um, so Kusama is not a test net. Uh, it's a cannery net. Um, and so what we mean by that is it has the real economic incentives of Polkadot. Um, it has like the original token distribution. We don't just like mint token to like that's kind of like the idea of a test net usually is like you just kind of like ask for 100 tokens and you get them um kusama is really like a, a place to actually deploy something in an environment that's more realistic to how polka dot will work um but it's also like a bit more bleeding edge and so um we want polka dot to be like as stable as possible and like really like infrastructure should be boring like um 
you know, we've kind of asked, been asked to like, you know, tell the story, like how exciting is this Polkadot launch going to be? And like, well, like if things go well, it should be like really boring. Um, like nothing should happen. Um, <laughs> Kusama, we don't want to be boring. We, we want it to be exciting. We want it to do things that like no blockchain has ever done before. Um, like we have this society thing that maybe Peter can talk a little bit more about. Um, so yeah, I mean, like Polkadot is really a place um, where you can deploy production production-ready applications or parachains um, and operate in a production environment, um, but with a lower barrier barrier to entry, lower stakes than actually working on Polkadot so that when you go into Polkadot, um, you can be a lot more prepared for like anything that goes wrong and then you're actually deploying something that's much more stable. And would you yeah. call it a, a canary network because it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine thing where it's like if something goes wrong? Interesting. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, as for those who don't understand, don't know the the analogy, the canary in the coal coal mine is back back in the day in coal and gem mining, they would take uh, small yellow birds, canaries, down into the mines with them, and if the birds started chirping too much or heaven forbid, fell over and died, the uh, the miners would know that there was some noxious gases or lack of oxygen where they were where they were working and, and get out of there before things went. When things went south. Um, the key, the key point in uh, sort of Kusama's future that Joe started to touch on was it, early, early on. It was very much focused on a, a place where we could ensure that the Polkadot technology that we launched for Polkadot was uh, economically secure and and stable. But going forward, it's absolutely taken on a, a, another whole set of use cases. The more One of the more interesting ones to me is this idea that it gives projects in the Polkadot eco- ecosystem a really elegant upgrade path or sort of project life cycle. So as Joe mentioned, there's a lower barrier to entry on a number of fronts for a team to d- develop and deploy their technology on Polkadot or on Kusama prove that it works, grow a community around it, um, understand what sort of uh, economic uh, incentives they need to make their system work, and then eventually uh, find a path to then uh, become a Polkadot parachain if that's what they want to do. So Kusama is very much like an adventurous, innovative uh, network where things move fast and you're really able to iterate uh, in rapid in a, in a rapid fashion. And then once you get to Polkadot, it's you're there because you want maximum security, maximum throughput, and you're really uh, you're really ready to provide a production ready application for the the global uh, Web three sort of ecosystem. So Kusama is kind of like uh, being an indies wrestler, polishing up your character, making sure you got a fan base, and then yes. when you finally get signed to it's WWE, the, the minor you're minor polished, yep. and you're and you're ripped. Cool, very cool. All right, guys, on to the closing questions before we run out of time. Um, if this was the first podcast someone getting into the space heard, what would you want them to know? Joe, let's start with you. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm, I can give like too much of a beginner's, a beginner's like angle into, into crypto because like when I got into this, like there were basically no resources. Um, it was like, you were kind of on your own. Um, and if you want like an embarrassing kind of like intro story, I, when I first heard of Bitcoin mining, it said like, yeah, you know, you have to like solve this like complicated math problem in order to mine Bitcoin. I didn't realize that there was like just computer software that you could like deploy on your computer and like mine Bitcoin. And like, I mean, I was working as like a finite element analyst and I was like, well, dude, I, I do solve math problems all day. Like, fuck that. I'm not going home <laughs> and like solving more math problems. Um, <laughs> and so um, like the resources just didn't exist back then. But I will say like, um, you know, like there's so many 
angles into the space. And a lot of times you feel like you have to be, you know, you have to know like the computer science stuff and like you don't. Um, I mean, like I didn't study computer science. I studied uh, like aeronautical engineering. Um, and like I first heard of this from like my libertarian friends and I was like, this is cool, but I didn't really get into it. Um, and then I kind of like got into it again, like four years later um, when I thought I could like trade stocks um, because I was like, well, hey, like a stock price that kind of looks like a vibration time signal. And so like I could probably like analyze it and model it with like the same stuff that I knew from like shock and vibration analysis. Um, but there's like, I mean, Peter's from like politics, um, computer science, engineering, trading. There's there's so many like ways to look at this crypto space that like pick something you're actually interested in and don't try to like force yourself to be a computer science scientist if you're not. Um, and like the other like advice I would give that um, the VP of engineering gave me at like my very first job, uh, which was in aerospace. Um, he told me like become an expert in something. And like, I'm actually really glad that I spent like six years on that first job. Cause I know in like startup land, people kind of like hop, you know, like one year here, one year there. Um, and I kind of felt like a dinosaur having spent like six years in the same job, uh, which is funny because like the old model is people would spend, you know, 30 years in a career. Um, but I, I am glad that like I actually like spent six years of like focusing on one thing um, because now when it comes um, to crypto in a space that's so big and like so complex, um, it gives you some perspective of like how to dive deep into something and when you need, when you need to zoom out. And so um, I would say like, yeah, pick an angle that you're interested in, become an expert in like one thing. Um, and then branch out from there. Totally agree. Um, I, I mentioned a couple before, obviously, as Joe said, becoming the, the, the go-to knowledge base for some of this is valuable if you're looking to get into the industry. But I think my biggest piece would be uh, the story doesn't end at Bitcoin. Um, and honestly, if you're purely focused on Bitcoin, you haven't really even begun to understand what this whole space is about. I harp on media outlets and reporters all day for covering Bitcoin price movements all day. So just there's always a deeper rabbit hole to jump into and don't be afraid to take the leap. Great advice, guys. Thank you so much, Joe and Peter, for coming on Crypto 101 podcast today. It's been an honor. Thank you for entertaining my esoteric questions as well as our technical ones. It's been a fascinating conversation. Gentlemen, we look forward to seeing the amazing things that Polkadot's doing. Thank you very much for all your hard work and we'll catch up with you guys again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.